Good morning, everyone. My name is Troy. I'm uh, one of the leaders here as part of our family of faith at Kettlebrook. I want to welcome you again to our gathering here this Sunday morning. Uh, We are in a short series this morning called God's Heart for the Nations. And I I know that maybe some of you are in the room and and you're like, you know what, Troy, this this God's Heart for the Nations series is is not maybe one of my favorite series that you do throughout the year. I had uh, 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 coffee with a brother in Christ a couple weeks back and and we sat down and he said, Troy, he goes, I'm, I just want to let you know that we had some friends of ours who, who left Kettlebrook because they felt like um, we were jamming global missions down their throat. And so I said, well, here's the deal. Mike and I have, we've, we've swapped places now, and, and so now I'm, I'm running things a little bit in that sense. And so I said, we're not going to talk about global missions anymore. Okay, that was so 2017. <laughs> Sorry, you should be laughing. That's a joke. Um, that is not what I said. Uh, here's what I said. First of all, my heart broke a little bit because I thought, you know, first of all, we're not trying to jam anything down anyone's throat. I think you're all here of your own volition, right? Okay, so we're not trying to jam anything down your throat. What we want to do is we want to inspire you to Jesus Christ every single Sunday and how Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel impacts and influences the way that we see everything. So here's what's going to happen. Because we swim in the scriptures and we're there regularly, you're going to keep hearing these things over and over again. Like, Like all the time, you're going to keep hearing about Jesus, because like all the scriptures are about him. You're going to keep hearing about um, the gospel and the good news about Jesus, because this, this is the good news. You're going to hear that all the time. You're going to hear things like sacrifice and redemption, and you're going to hear things like freedom. And yes, God's heart for the nations, because it's all throughout God's word. We hear his heart in this. Now, having said that, You'll say, you might say, Troy, okay, but like you, you, you folks always from the front, you're talking about like going to some people group and I mean, I can't even pronounce it. Like, I don't even know where that country is that you're talking about. And so that's so far, Troy, I can't share my faith with people at work or at school, let alone think about like selling everything and going to these crazy faraway places. So I, I get that. And cause you're, you're, that's, that's where you're at here this morning. I get that. I understand. So this morning, as part of this short series, I want to take a a little bit of a different look at God's heart for the nations, and I want to look at it more of a local sense, but I don't necessarily think it's going to be any less convicting or any less challenging, because this morning I want to take a look at how Jesus and how the good news of the gospel speaks to the idea of race and racial reconciliation, okay? Because, Because the gospel speaks to this. I got an email this week from a friend of mine, and she shared a story with me. She wrote this in the email. She said, every night at dinner, we choose a question for everyone in our family to answer from a box of questions on our table. I think it's those would you rather questions based on uh, what she shared. This time, the question was, would you rather have the power to fly or to be invisible? Seems innocent enough. Now, just a a note, this family has both uh, white children and black children. As they went around the table, all of our white children, along with my husband and I, answered that we would rather fly, with each one of us sharing how adventurous and cool it would be to see the world from above and to get different places so quickly. When it was our black children's turn to answer, they each said they'd rather be invisible. We, of course, asked the follow-up question of why. And they told us that if they were invisible, no one would know the color of their skin. I think if, if we were honest, 
the majority of, this room, of us in this room have never had to have that thought. We just haven't had to have that thought. And I know that when I bring up the terms race or racial reconciliation, this can be charged. You might start to go down a political road. Please hear my heart. If you trust me, this has nothing to do with politics. This has to do with the motivation here this morning is the gospel. And how the gospel speaks into this issue that's very relevant for us, even us here in Washington County, maybe especially for us here in Washington County, where 94% of us are Caucasian Anglo white people. So here's what I want to do with you. I want to take a look at what I believe is Jesus' heart around this issue. And then I want to look and say, hey, does the early church adopt Jesus' heart in what they seem to live out and practice? And then how do we, if that's Jesus' heart, adopt and practice those things as well? So that's where we're headed this morning. To do that, I want to take you on a little bit of a journey through a couple texts. The first one is in Luke chapter 4. So please grab a Bible, please. Uh, The Brown Bible is page 727 if you didn't bring it with you. It's going to be in Luke chapter 4 this morning and read verses 14 through 30. Luke is an account of the life of Jesus. And what we find is that Luke, um, he, he records basically the first sermon, if you would, or one, at least one of the first sermons that we find Jesus giving has, it addresses some of this issue. Okay. So I want to read verses 14 through 30. Before I do that, I want to pray and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is useful, it's, it's breathed by you, and it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. It does not return void. We pray, Father, that would be the case, that more than anything I say this morning, that these words I am about to read would, would convict us by your Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's, let's enter into this account of Jesus that Luke records for us. This is after Jesus was tempted in the desert. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. This is from Isaiah, chapter 61. Here's what it says. Jesus said this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then it says He rolled the scroll up, gave it back to the attendant, and He sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Him, and He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Must be nice, Jesus, to just read the scripture and then say, boom, fulfilled. That's a sermon for you right there. Verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And Jesus said to him, surely you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years. And there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him up to the brow on the hill which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. 
but he walked right through the crowds and went on his way. This is God's word. So kind of a roller coaster, right? Like, I mean, you, you saw the roller coaster, kind of a schizophrenic text to, to some extent, right? Help me out. How are the people perceiving and receiving Jesus in verse 15? Look, look in your scriptures. What, what do you find there? Help answer, answer, shout it out. Verse 15, how are they perceiving Jesus? They're praising Jesus. Yeah, they're praising Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you're great. How about 22? Verse 22. What are they, what are we, how are people perceiving Jesus in verse 22? They're amazed. Who is? Everyone's amazed at the gracious, lip, the gracious words coming from his lips. How about verse 28? Furious. Whoa. Who, who was furious? Everybody. Everybody was furious. They, something happened. So something happened between verse 22 and verse 28. What happened? I would like to propose that one of the things that happened is ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism happened between 22 and 28. Now, you might be just wondering, like, Troy, I don't, that's a big word. I don't know what ethnocentrism is. Ethnocentrism is when we evaluate the world and we see the lens that we see things through is through our own ethnicity. Okay, and so we, we, we kind of have our own ways that we grew up in our ethnic, uh, the way that we grew up, and so we kind of evaluate things. I'll give you a couple of simple examples and ramp up into it. Some of you might be here this morning, and you come in, and there might be a, maybe a couple, three, maybe four people who will just be singing, Becky and the team will lead, and they'll put their hands up like this. And what you do is you're like, Are, I'm not under arrest. Like, you know, like, that's not, I don't know what you're doing. That is weird. That's weird for me. Okay? You're like, I prefer the Vulcan form of worship. Which is no expression. Thank you very much. Now, take that to the next step. Uh, a couple, ten, ten years ago or so, I, I, I had my first chance to ever worship God in the context of a family of African faith. Okay, so in the church in Africa, I was there in Rwanda, and, and uh, it was my first experience doing that. Well, they take an offering at the gatherings that they have as well there, but the way that they do it is instead of passing the basket, they have a couple baskets up front, and everyone comes up with their money, and they dance and they dance and they put the offering in the basket like as they dance. Now, can you imagine our beloved John Frizzell? Can you imagine John Frizzell, you know, busting a move on his way up to the offering basket? You can't, you don't want, I don't want to imagine that. Sorry, John. And so, so what ethnocentrism does is it, say, it goes from, okay, like, that's, that's different, that's weird. And ethnocentrism can blend into what, what we call racism when we start to go, that's, that's, that's not just weird and different, that's wrong. I hate that. I hate them. Very subtly, this can happen to us. So ethnocentrism can blend into this, okay? Now, for the context in Luke 4, Jesus comes onto the scene. He's a very Jewish man. So I want to set up his ethnic background for you as he enters into this text. Jesus is a Jewish man. His ethnicity is huge, and it's huge to the Jewish people because it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. So I want to go back there with you. Genesis chapter 12, after the flood, God takes a man, taps him on the shoulder. He's named Abraham. Abraham's got no family. He says, hey, Abraham, I'm picking you. Out of all the people in the world, I'm going to make you into a family, into a race, into a nation that is going to be my people. And through you, all nations, all races, all ethnicities, one day are going to be blessed somehow. Abraham's like, I don't even have any kids. He's like, I'm going to give you one. We're going to start this thing off. 
And then so they start this family. It becomes kind of what's called the Hebrew people at first. And then uh, his grandson Jacob has had his name changed by God to Israel. And so they become the Israelites and what we know as the Jewish people now. And so this is the ethnicity that, that, that we're talking about here that Jesus is into. And one of the ways that, that God had said to Abraham, I want you to be identified as my people, is he gave all these laws. So you know these commandments in the Old Testament. The reason God gave those in part was for he's like, hey, I want you to be known in this world as my people. And so if you live this way, you'll have a better chance of reflecting me to the world because I'm a God who's gracious and justice and loving and, and, and all those and love justice and all those things. But they can't do it. They can't be holy. And so they trust and rely that one day there's going to be a Messiah that comes that will rescue them from their own sin. Because what happened in their sin is that people said, I, God, I don't want you. Even though I'm your chosen people, we don't want you. And we keep rejecting you and sinning. And God says, fine, you don't want me. You can be just like all other nations, all their ethnicities. You can be just like them. So God allowed all these other ethnicities to, to kind of become overlords over them. The Egyptians first. Then the Assyrians. Then the Babylonians. Then the Persians then the Greeks, and when Jesus comes, it's the Romans, okay? Just time and time again, there's all these Gentiles that are over these people, and they start to go into this mode of like going from, oh man, we're supposed to be a people who are supposed to be blessing all peoples eventually to just becoming ethnocentric ethnocentric, and then racist. Jesus comes onto the scene in Luke chapter 4 in his hometown, okay? A whole bunch of people would have looked just like him, talked just like him, had known the language, and then he opens the scroll of Isaiah and reads these amazing promises from Isaiah 61. He sits down and he says, today in your hearing, these scriptures are fulfilled. And it says, everyone's like, dang, is that Joseph's son? I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. Jesus, you're awesome. But something else happened. Because everyone in that synagogue would have had that text memorized. And they would have, as he would have read this, they would have known this because they just had these things memorized. They had memorized the, the Torah and the, and the scriptures. And Jesus, it seems like he stopped. It's like he stopped in verse 2 of 61 of Isaiah. And they're, they're probably just thinking at first, like, oh, maybe he just stopped. He's kind of a positive guy. He just stopped positive. He didn't end with this negative piece. But here's how this verse goes at least to the next comma. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And then so they might be going, oh, maybe he left that off. But maybe he did that just kind of like unintentionally, just stopped after the Jubilee thing. Jesus doesn't leave well enough alone, though. He keeps talking. He keeps talking. And he, he actually starts to prove that he left that off on purpose, it seems. Because he goes, hey, here's the deal, everyone. Do you, know, do you remember in Elijah, the prophet's time? Do you remember there was this like three and a half year drought? God didn't send him to any widow. There was widows all over in Israel. God didn't send him to them. He sent them to a widow in Zarephath, a Sidonian Gentile woman. And when I say the word Gentile, I need you to understand that because of Abraham's family, the, the Hebrew Israelite people, it was like Hebrew, Israelites, and then everybody who was not that was called Gentiles, including most of you here in the room would be called Gentiles. And God's like, this is, uh, this is what's going on. And Jesus says, hey, do you remember Elisha, the next prophet? There were lepers all over Israel. And God didn't send them to any of them. He sent them to Naaman, the Syrian, the Gentile. And it says all the people went out of their gourd. They lost their mind. In one minute they're like, Jesus! And the next minute they're like, Jesus! Okay, like that's what happens between verse 22 and verse 28. They lose their minds. Why? 
because of some ethnocentric things that were happening that, that led to racist things. And then, and then here's the thing. Jesus, in part, came to deconstruct those things. Jesus came, in part, to de- deconstruct those things. Brothers and sisters, by default, our ethnicity is you all have an ethnic background. You just do. You grew up a certain ethnicity. You were literally born into it, okay? And we also have this history that we have that shapes the way that we look at others of different ethnicities. We have that. But our ethnicity should not be our primary lens by which we see the world. The kingdom of God, the gospel and the good news of Jesus, that we are children of God needs to be our first lens. I'm not saying here this morning that you should take our ethnic identities and erase them because that's not, that's not what God wants. We have these unique, amazing expressions that we can reflect them in the world. The goal, though, is to see Jesus and the good news of the gospel and that we're sons and daughters as our first filter. Also, I want to make a disclaimer. Every ethnicity needs the gospel. Okay, every ethnicity. This is not just a white thing, okay? This is not a white-only issue. I just happen to be white, really white. You know that. It's wintertime. We're just going to get whiter, okay? And I'm speaking to a bunch of people who are mostly white, okay? So the question then is, okay, if Jesus seems to bring this up, does the early church take a, did, did they misinterpret Jesus in this? Did they think about something differently? How did the early church, that seemed to be Jesus, and there's other texts I could call that would address this idea, but I had to cut a bunch of them. So what I want to do now is I want to have you turn, I usually don't do this, I want to have you turn to the second text, Ephesians chapter 2. It's on page 827. I encourage you to just turn to that page and look at Ephesians chapter 2. I want to say, hey, the early church seems to take the same approach that we find in, um, in Jesus. Now, Paul is a very, he wrote this letter. Paul's a very, very Jewish man, okay? He was hating on Christians, was trying to see him killed, and then he met Jesus Christ. His life was transformed, and he, he, he worshipped Jesus. He, he worshipped Jesus as God, and he, became, he came to understand this part of God's heart for him through Jesus, so much so that I want you to write it down, Acts chapter 22 in your bulletin, Acts chapter 22. If you go there, I wanted to preach this, Steph said so I had to cut it. I don't have enough time. Acts chapter 22, you will find Paul go through the exact same thing that Jesus went through in Luke chapter 4. He mentions, he's preaching, he mentions the word Gentiles, and people say he rid the earth of them. Anyway, you've got to go check it out. But Paul is writing to these followers of Jesus in the, in the church that he helped plant in the city of Ephesus, and he's writing to Gentiles, that would be like you and me. And uh, here's what he writes. I'm going to read verse 11 through uh, 22. Paul writes, Therefore, remember, you Gentiles who trusted in Jesus, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, And then there's a whole circumcision piece. That's a different sermon. Sorry, I'm going to skip that. Uh, Verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You're foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. Sorry, the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those of you who were far away, in peace to those who were near, and for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. 
So here's what we see. Paul's like, hey, you were Gentiles by birth. That was your ethnicity. You're born into that thing. And because of, of, of just that alone, you were outside of those promises that were made to Abraham. But that was the way that you used to be, without hope, without God in the world. But through Jesus Christ, you who are on the outside are now on the inside of that, through Jesus Christ. By his blood, you're brought near. There's been peace. There's been this dividing wall that's been broken down. Okay? And one of the dividing walls that Paul is obviously talking about here is the law itself. The law was there, and it was like, hey, here's God's people. They're trying to be holy. They're following the law. That was a dividing wall. Dividing wall. Well, Jesus, Jesus broke that down because he fulfilled it. He was the only one who could, who could fulfill the law. But there was another dividing wall I think that Paul might be referencing here, and it's a physical wall that was at the temple. I'll show you a picture of it here. So here's the deal. There's a wall here with a little arrow on the bottom right where the court of Gentiles, they, the Gentiles could come. So people who were not of the Hebrew Israelite Jewish background could come to the temple. If they say, I want to worship Yahweh God, they could come, but they could only come so close because they didn't have the, the, the ethnic backstage pass to get closer to God than that. That's where they had to stop. In fact, they had to stop. There were even signs that the Jewish people put up on the wall that looked like this. And here's what this sign says in Greek, because it was in their language in Greek, so the foreigners would be able to read it. Here's what it says. Foreigners must not enter. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Welcome. (laughs) Come right in, obviously. You climb that wall, you got your own self to blame for the death that's going to happen to you. Okay? Here's the thing. When Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, not only is it recorded that the temple curtain was torn in two, that temple curtain separated the holy from the the unholy, if you would, because Jesus is the holy one. That that curtain was torn in two. I think Paul is saying this wall out here, this this was torn too. This was broken down in Jesus Christ because the gospel deconstructs ethnocentrism and racism, reconciling us not only to the Father, but first to the Father and then to one another as a result. Now, brothers and sisters, I think we have to confess. Sometimes I think that we have dividing walls in our own life when it comes to this area of of ethnicity. We have our own dividing walls of hostility. I think we we don't maybe always admit it, but I think they're there. And I think one of the things we have to do is we have to start by raising the awareness in our own hearts and acknowledging that they're there. I think sometimes we come to this place where we say, oh, you know what? Didn't like Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement take away this stuff? We know better than that. It doesn't take much of any searching or any kind of long time on the TV to see that that's not the case or in the news. And and my guess is that most of you in the room would say, Troy, Troy, come on, I'm not a racist. Well, praise God for that. But here's what I want to confess to you as one of your leaders. I am a racist. I'm a racist. And I'm a racist in ways that I honestly don't even know that I'm a racist. I'm just being real honest with you, because I've had to wrestle with this and grow in this, okay? And I think it's easy potentially for us to say, I'm not a racist, because 94 out of 100 people that we're going to meet today are going to look just like us and think just like us. Do you know who doesn't have a problem connecting with me and understanding me? 40-year-old white dudes. Like, I get you. 
But if we, if we claim to believe in the good news of the gospel, we have to seek to let Jesus deconstruct these things in our hearts and in our lives. I remember when, when, when Steph and I went to, to, to get our youngest son, Ephraim, in uh, the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, I went a couple days early because Steph needed to stay back with the kids and it was going to be a long time there. So I went there a couple days early. She had to come a few days later. And when she came, she had to fly from, I think, JFK to Brussels and Brussels to Kinshasa, DRC. Well, something happened in that flight, and she went from um, Brussels. She had to fly first to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and then from there to Kinshasa. Well, she, she didn't know that was going to happen. She did that. She had to get off the plane in, in, in Addis Ababa, and I don't know if you know, it's not super high tech there. So like, they went off like the plane, got onto another plane on the tarmac. She gets in there. There's the, she's the only white person on the entire plane, and there's a whole bunch of young African men, very rowdy, and they're, they're slamming back those tiny little liquor bottles. You know what I'm talking about? Stephanie was scared. She was scared. And you'd be like, yeah, I'd be scared too. But here's the thing. We talked about this. I, I don't think that if she was in Frankfurt, flying Lufthansa, to anywhere else in the world, and there was a bunch of Germans on the plane, that she would have felt the same fear. She might have been annoyed. But she probably wouldn't have felt the same fear. You, you probably don't take Highway 145 down to Milwaukee. And you're like, yeah, I do. During the day, with my doors locked, running the red lights. Okay? We have these dividing walls of hostility. Now, in our context, one very common but subtle dividing wall in our experience is this idea that we as Midwestern, hardworking Anglos, we, we believe this, and I, I want to talk specifically about um, maybe the African-American uh, culture that we kind of think about this, and I've heard this, so that's why I'm sharing it. We say and think, if only they would just work harder, then they could become more successful. But I, I think we have to admit there's simply advantages that we have that, we, that others don't, that we don't recognize them at times. One of the best ways I've ever heard this illustrated kind of changed my thinking in this because I didn't think about this before was a guy named Michael Stewart who heads up the Verge Network gave this illustration of the game Monopoly. And so I want to share it with you because I thought it was helpful for me and I'm hoping it's helpful for you as well, just thinking through this idea. So I want you to imagine, for example, that your family is, is black, okay? And my family's white. And um, your grandfather, your, your black grandfather sits down with white, my white grandfather. They're going to play a game of Monopoly, okay? And so what happens is that your, your black grandfather starts to play around the board and gets to go. But instead of getting $200, my, black, or my white grandfather punches your black grandfather in the face, takes his $200, and they keep playing like this. Okay? So every time he passes go, your black grandfather, my white, my white grandfather, punches him in the face, takes his $200. Okay? Now, the game continues, same game continues, but at some point we say, you know what? Our parents, our dads play. Okay? They take the place of our grandparents. And so my white father plays against your black father. And, and what my white father does is he says, hey, um, I'm sorry that my dad punched you in the face and took your $200. What we're going to do is we're going to play and, by the rules now. We're going to play by the rules um, it's still the same game, but, but we're still we're going to play by the rules. Now, you know, if you play Monopoly, you're, you're kind of running uphill at this point, right? Fair enough? Do you know, have you played Monopoly before? You have, right? Okay, so, so keep tracking with me on this. 
So what happens is that, that your, what, your, your, black grand, your black father goes and he gets enough money and he lands on Marvin Gardens. He wants to buy Marvin Gardens. And so my white father says, hey, well, I'm sorry, but here's the thing. Like you, you, can't, you can't buy that property. You can buy these ones on this first street down here. You can buy these ones in this first street. That, by the way, is called redlining. It's something that happened throughout history. It's a reality. It was banned 50 years ago. That is part of our history. I'm just sharing that via a board game. The other thing we not, just side note want you to know is that Monopoly, if you know this, was built off the city of Atlantic City. Did you know that? The properties are from Atlantic City. And if you went to Atlantic City when this was built, if you went to Baltic Avenue and Mediterranean, you'd find the African-American community. If you went to Park Place, you'd find a segregated beach. Just a side note. Anyway, your dad says, I guess we're going to play it like it is. You own the bank, so I guess I can't buy Marvin Gardens. We'll just keep playing. Well, anyway, that goes on for a while. And then the game continues, but now you and I sit down. And I say to you, you're, you're black and I'm white, and I say, hey, you know what? There's nowhere in the rules that Marvin Gardens, you can't buy Marvin Gardens. We are going to play by the rules now. Let, let's be honest. What are the chances of, of you doing well in that game? They're not very good. And I, I just want to acknowledge, and I'm, I'm saying this as a very white man, speaking mostly to white people. I just want to acknowledge the game is skewed in our favor in that sense. It's part of our history, Okay. And it's, it's called privilege, okay? It's called white privilege because we're white. And it's called privilege in different ways to different folks. Now, I know that that term makes us lose our minds sometimes, and here's why. I think I know why. That term makes us lose our minds at times. Because privilege, the word privilege, goes so deeply against our own ethnic and cultural backgrounds that we hate that. And the reason why is because we are hard workers. We have never, we have, we have earned what we have. It's so deeply entrenched in us that our identity is a hardworking middle class, middle class Midwestern Anglos. And please understand that I get this. Please understand that I grew up on a dairy farm in Monticello, okay? Like there were 24 people in my class. In my entire city, there was one Latino. And he was given a hard time. Trust me. Like I understand what hard work is and how it's so saturated in our culture. My dad is 82 years old and he will get on a tractor 12 hours a day to this day as long as it's not raining. I was raised in that. I was here 14 hours myself yesterday. I was raised in a culture of hard work. In fact, it's, it's so embedded in us that it actually impacts our spirituality. We start to believe, oh, if I just work hard and I'm a good person, then God will, he actually owes me and uh, I deserve to be, to go to heaven and all this stuff. Like, that's not true. That's not the gospel. We preach on that like every other sermon, every other Sunday of the whole year. But, so I'm going to stay focused on this right now. But here's the thing. The humbling, humbling reality is, is that as hard as we work, we have to just acknowledge we're, we're not even the hardest working people on the planet, which I know sounds crazy. It might blow your mind. Here's the thing. Let me tell you. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was, my nephew paid for me to come down and officiate his wedding in Punta Cana. It was, it was a great vacation. It was an awesome blessing. We're in Punta Cana, and uh, Stephanie and I, we get up in, to watch the sunrise on the beach, and we want to pray together, we want to read God's Word together. It's, we're on vacation, my nephew, for his wedding. So we get up before the sun rises, and we see Sammy. Sammy's one of the employees at this all-inclusive. You who've been there, you know these employees, right? We spend the day lounging around, eating, resting. It's, it's wonderful. Um, 11 o'clock at night, they're putting a show on. Sammy's in the show. After the show, he's putting, he's cleaning everything up, putting it away. In other words, Sammy, and this was like this every day. Sammy's working 18 hours a day. 
And, 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 and we know that the idea of Sammy going, going to an all-inclusive is probably not going to happen because he, he doesn't get paid almost anything. So here, here's the thing. We just have to acknowledge that I think we have these, these things that we enjoy that we're not even aware of at times. And I'm saying I'm learning this myself. I'm trying to help us as a family learn some of this because it helps us to understand stories better before we condemn maybe a culture, we learn that story and understand and empathize. I want to give you another example of things that exist that you might not even think about. Let me ask you this. You cut your finger. You go to the medicine cabinet. I always take the, the hydrogen peroxide out and wash my kids, whatever things. They hate that. Ah, it stinks. So we do that. And then we put some neosporin on it. Ooh, that feels better. And then what do we do? What do we put on top of that? A Band-Aid. You put a Band-Aid on it. Now, here's the thing. Did you know that you can buy almost any kind, anything with like almost any kind of Band-Aid on it nowadays? You, you can buy, almost, they have almost anything printed on the front of a Band-Aid today. In fact, they have an Ant-Man Band-Aid. You know who Ant-Man is? He's like the dumbest Avenger. Okay, like, be honest. Like, who thinks Ant-Man deserves his own Band-Aid? Nobody, okay? Ant-Man should not have his own Band-Aid. But you know what you can't buy? If you are a black person, you cannot buy a Band-Aid that matches your skin color. So when you and I walk, we go into our medicine cabinet, we get these band-aids that people won't see because they'll blend into our skin. You can't do that. You can get a Black Panther band-aid. That's as close as you can get. There was a, a group of Christians out of Wheaton who formed a company, True Color, where there's actually band-aids that, like, you can't, you can't, I looked, I looked, I couldn't find a band-aid that was made in a color that would match the skin of an African-American. You might be like, Troy, are you serious right now? You're preaching about band-aids? No, I'm not preaching about band-aids. I'm just preaching about the fact that Jesus Christ, when he came, he said, no, we're gonna, there, is a, there is a race that I am making that is going to be a race that is based on the kingdom. doesn't mean these other things go away as far as our differences. He's like, I have brought, I have come to reconcile everybody through my blood to the Father, and I've, I've come to reconcile them to one another. I've come to reconcile them to one another. I mean, I, I give you something that kind of wrenches my heart. I have never had to tell my son Isaac that when it's cold out that he has to think really hard about wearing his hood when he runs around our neighborhood. I have to have that dialogue with my son Ephraim. These are just some of the things that we, we just kind of take for granted. But here's the good news. The good news is that the gospel of Jesus Christ deconstructs, it deconstructs all this, all these divisions that we have. The gospel, it says, Paul writes, Jesus Christ is our peace. He's our peace. He's the one that reconciles us to the Father, and then we can be reconciled to one another. Now, this isn't going to be perfect because we're still here on this earth until he redeems all things. Which, by the way, if you, if you don't like people of other ethnicities, I just need to let, warn you that eternity looks like all tribes, all tongues, all nations. That's what it says. All races. In fact, the coolest thing about all of our, of our own ethnicities, the coolest, the greatest accomplishments of all of our individual ethnicity, ethnicities are like crowns. They're going to be thrown down at the feet of Jesus Christ on that day as He is the one who is most important. He has reconciled us to the Father and we are to reconcile each other to one another. So now you might be sitting here this morning and say, Troy, okay, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? Do I go buy Band-Aid? Like, what are you trying to say? Um, 
I want to bring up some friends of mine who are seeking to try to answer that question as a family. So this is the third part. How do, what do we do with this in, in our own midst? So I want to bring up um, Marcia Temez and Christian Navalis and Noel Braun. It's a blessing, Robert, to have Robert with us specifically this morning because Robert is in South Carolina. He is a major in the Army, and he trains chaplains. Um, Robert's, we miss Robert because his wife and family are here, but he needs to be down on, on mission there for our country. And so, Robert, it's a blessing that you're here. We didn't, I didn't know you were even going to be here until this last week. So <laughs> praise God for that. Um, you have heard us talk about this racial reconciliation group. Um, and so I wanted to bring these folks up because they're part of that. So can you each briefly share how God has put this specific issue? Because there's a lot of issues that are on all of our hearts that the gospel speaks to. But this specific issue, how has God uh, drawn you to this and put this on your heart? Um, so I've been fortunate to uh, be born, uh, be a first-generation American here, uh, born to my parents who immigrated to West Bend from the Philippines. And while it's been at an amazing blessing to grow up here in West Bend and in the States. It has not always been great. Um, it's, I learned very young that I was different and that people didn't have a problem telling me I was different. Um, so uh, racism is something that we, as a family, um, just experienced almost on a daily basis, whether it was in school, going to the store, um, you know, just simple things like that that... You know, we'd walk in and immediate comments. It was like a record stop when we walked in somewhere. So um, it's been something that's been very near and dear to my heart as, uh, you know, as a kid growing up and now as an adult um, raising kids who look different than others. So um, Marsha, like Troy said, started the group. And when she called me and said, hey, you know, this is God's put this on my heart. You know, what better way to try to fight this problem that we have than doing it through God's word. So thanks, Christian. Noelle. So even before I joined Kettlebrook uh, a little over a year ago, I've known Christian and Marsha both separately. Marsha is um, my husband, Eric's cousin. And Christian, I was fortunate enough to go to high school with Christian and got to meet him that way and get to know his family. Um, when I, I was invited to join uh, this group, before we were members of Kettlebrook, um, many of you may know that I do direct the nonprofit Casa Guadalupe Education Center. Uh, so on a daily basis, I am very fortunate to work with um, closely with the Hispanic community, prominent, predominantly Spanish-speaking families uh, who have moved here, immigrated here, putting their roots down the community, having their children here, and so again, providing a lot of a variety of education and literacy programs for them. Um, so. My heart in that way has been uh, closely tied with people from different cultures, and it goes back even further uh, for me as well. Um, so personally, with my background, uh, some of you know already, but for those of you who don't know, uh, when most people look at me, uh, they don't know that, of course, my mom, uh, she uh, comes from a predominantly uh, very uh, German, you know, European heritage. A lot of us can uh, empathize with that. And my dad is actually African-American and very much looks so. I have eight half-brothers and sisters who are, the majority of them, look African-American as well. And uh, lots of cousins, aunts and uncles. Um, my dad was actually born in 1933 in North Carolina, and my grandfather was a sharecropper. Um, so it's, uh, it goes back. So growing up, my parents did divorce when I was six. My mom predominantly raised me in Port Washington, of course, predominantly white community. 
And so growing up, though, I did have those experiences with um, the African-American side of my family and uh, the white side of my family, and I learned to appreciate both sides very much. So, of course, wrestling, too, with how God created me, how I look, um, really appreciating both sides of me. Um, And then also, as I got older and older, hearing comments around me that were, um, you know, racially charged or racist about other groups of people, um, African-Americans and others, and people felt like they could say it around me because I don't look black, you know. So there was that growing up, too. Um, So, but growing up, you know, in a Christian home, too, I've just always appreciated the gospel message and how God did, he reconciled us together. So I've always had that heart for wanting uh, that reconciliation and that unity. And so um, when I found out about the group, I was just so encouraged and really excited that something like this was happening right here in Washington County. And so thank you. Thanks, Noel. Robert. I think for me, Troy, I came into it because you know, I'm black, for one. Um, and, but I've been in a biracial relationship for my wife now. And, but over the last number of years, probably 25, 30 years ago, is when the Lord got a hold of my heart and wanted to see a change in this area. So when Marsha started talking about this and you invited me into this group, that's when it became for me, I think, here. Even I struggled coming into the group uh, because I, I thought, once again, here we go, once again, we're going to try this again, and where are we going to go? And, uh, and I've been wrestling with this. So it's, it's not something that uh, I think we're going to deal with and we're going to unpack completely today. Uh, but uh, that's kind of where I started at. So it's still a place where we're, we're tugging and pulling to, to get some ground here. Yeah, amen. Thanks, Robert. For me, it started by just um, reading a book. I read a book called The Warmth of Other Suns, and it was completely eye-opening for me just to be like, this is our history, and I don't know if I knew that. And so um, I started digging into more books, more listening, just hearing um, stories from um, people of color, and I just, my heart broke because I was like, our world is broken in this way. And um, so I just started thinking, like, what can we do as believers in, in Christ, like, to preach the gospel, to fix this, to mend hearts and um, ask for forgiveness for some of the things that we've done as a country. And and so I just started um, seeking out people who I've heard stories about um, and who've had stories that I wanted to hear and um, seeking out people that where their hearts were the same place mine was and um, just formed a little group, which has been pretty awesome experience. Awesome. You can hold on to that, Marcia. Let me ask this question. Marcia, how do you see the gospel uh, speaking into this topic of racial reconciliation? Noel hinted on it. Um, how would you add to that? Um, I see the gospel as, um, like Troy mentioned earlier, I mean, you know, they talk about our end times as being every tribe, nation, and tongue bowing before Jesus. And um, it doesn't say um, only these tribes or only these nations, only if they... You know, there's no stipulations there. We are all loved. Um, we are all created equal. Equal, And um, to see a society that has convinced us that there are some people who don't have as much worth is just not true. That goes completely against the character of Jesus. Um, so I think that's the good news is that as being followers of Christ, we can be those bridge builders and we can be those people that um, accept everyone fully and completely without any kind of hesitation. We, we can't fix this by, by looking at our, our skin color. We've got to go to the cross of this and realize that only the grace of God is going to help us through this. Only his mercy 
that we, he's given us can we share with others and deal with others in that way. And that's why I try. I try to just be unassuming about the gospel. So two things. When I find my heart starting to sway from God in terms of just loving God and then also loving others myself, that's when I stop and examine myself through the gospel. Because it happens all the time. It happens all the time with me as I, as, as I try and make my way through as a black man in this country. And I say, okay, I need to stop because I'm starting to fall back into my protected mold and think, what has Christ given me through the gospel? Amen. Amen. Um, the only other thing I would add is uh, growing up and even today, I've always enjoyed um, hearing about how Jesus just reached out to people who were not Jews. And I believe in John 4 is when he, uh, they tell about how Jesus had met with a woman from Samaria. And Jews and Samaritans, were they just did not mix. You were not supposed to speak with each other, to mingle with each other. And Jesus just broke down those walls and those barriers um, and just shared you know, that he was the living water to her. And that just totally changed her life and the community's life, too. Yeah, amen, amen. So um, one of the things we would ask is, is, hey, what steps can we take to grow in this area of our life? One of them is potentially inviting people to be part of the group itself. So Christian, can you talk to that? One of the applications uh, is obviously that. We're trying to create a space for that here. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we have our group that has been meeting, and it's been such a blessing to have members of our family be part of that. Um, our family here at Kettlebrook. Um, so, you know, the purpose of the group is to have, you know, people come in and have meaningful conversations and not debates about this issue. Like, we're, we don't want to have debates. We can save that for Facebook or whatever. But, um, you know, we just That's want... That's really effective. Yeah, it's, yeah, effective. it's super yeah. effective, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so we just, you know, we try to listen to each other's stories, learn from each other's experiences, and then pair that with God's word, and then share that with our family here at Kettlebrook, and then ultimately our family outside of Kettlebrook here in Washington County. So, so one of the application steps, and I see if you've got a slide for this, is next Sunday night, uh, the group is going to be meeting here at the community center. So from 6 to 8 p.m., probably out here in the lobby area, if you're saying, well, what step could I take to help uh, educate myself, to maybe engage in the dialogue, this would be a very practical step that we wanted to take as a follow-up to this message. Uh, what else, Noel or, or Marcia, what, what other things would you recommend as far as, hey, what can we do? What steps can we take? Um, absolutely. One of the steps that I, some of the members of Kettlebrook have already taken, even before I joined Kettlebrook, was um, becoming involved with different groups, um, such as Casa Guadalupe Education Center. Uh, the Hispanic community is the largest minority community now in Wisconsin and right here in our community of Washington County. And we do a variety of volunteer opportunities um, and events that we have that bring our community together. So some people uh, that go to Kettlebrook, uh, good friends of mine now, help volunteer, whether it's um, you know working and reading with kids, elementary school children, um, on their uh, English reading skills um, to, you know, just helping out one-time events. Um, myself, as the director of CASA, um, want to continue looking into how we can um, bring people together in different ways. Maybe we can, you know, have a meal together and learn how to make tamales or something like that. Um, some people also help others with their English reading, or I'm sorry, with um, adults with their English language skills, um, whether they're helping out in a classroom setting or one-on-one. -on -one. And it's just been so awesome to see the relationships being formed, um, people getting to know another person from another culture, another language, but just getting to know them through helping teach them English. And sometimes people want to learn a little bit of Spanish, like we call it inter cambios, like a little exchange that way. And people really um, 
start to gain some uh, meaningful relationships and friendships. And that's always what I would suggest is any way you can get yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone outside of that Washington County comfort zone um, to maybe be the only minority in the room. Or maybe to, um, again, just get to know someone on a a level where they've come from a different place, and you will find that you have so many more similarities than differences. Yeah, Yeah. thanks. Marcia? I would recommend um, reading and learning as much as you can. So read, um, listen to podcasts. We're going to have a list of resources in the um, lobby if you're interested, and just um, some really good resources. I can't even explain how God has changed my heart in the last probably three years since I've started doing that. He can do some really amazing things. Um, So I would recommend that and um, lots of prayer, just seeking out your own heart and asking questions of um, why, what you you're feeling and why you're feeling it. And um, maybe some confession, Um, seeking out relationships with people of color. I know it's kind of hard and this pretty white um, community, but um, like Noel said, there are, there are some opportunities, and if you start praying about it, God will put those people in your path and um, just start to listen to stories. And social media sometimes can be really a horrible place to go, but it also has helped me a lot just to open my eyes to other people's stories. I started realizing that almost all of my people I follow and all my friends were white, and so I actively started seeking out um, pastors of color or different religious leaders and just listening to their stories and um, their their ideas and thoughts. Unanimously, it's a relationship. That's what it boils down to, the relationship. What's your relationship with Christ? And how does that flow down from you and into the lives of other people? That's really where it starts, relationships. Yeah, so, something I'm working on too, trying to grow that myself in my own uh, network of brothers and sisters in Christ in that way. So can we give these uh, folks a warm round of applause and thank you. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate your hard work on this, guys, and uh, look forward to continuing to see what God's doing uh, in and through this group. As we close, um, we're going to sing in a minute, but before we do that, I just want to read the rest of what Paul wrote in closing. In verse 19 in chapter 2, listen to these words that he writes. Consequently, you, these are the Gentiles, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This is good news. This is the good news. This is what the gospel does. As Jesus Christ is our peace, and He reconciles us to the Father, and then empowers us by His Spirit to be reconcilers as well. Let's pray. Father, we confess. We come before You and we confess that we do not deserve to be reconciled to You, We have not earned that. We have not worked hard enough. We have not been good enough or holy enough. We are not holy. But through your Son, Jesus, by his blood, he has brought us who are far away from you, Father, near. And we are so grateful for that. That is the best news we could ever hear. And, Father, we also uh, confess that there is elements where we are part of the, the fact that there's not reconciliation between ourselves and others, of our own race and of other races. And so we pray, Father, that by your Spirit, 
that we would overflow with mercy because we've been given mercy, that we would overflow with love because we've been demonstrating, you've demonstrated this love to us. Father, I pray that you would show us what this looks like because you have in your son Jesus. Help us to see and hear what he has for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.